0: You have all of these beautiful markers of the American West, you know, a post office at the time. That was also the scene of an old West shootout. These buildings that just kind of pepper the landscape and tell a lot of that story.
1: The popular TV series, Yellowstone, and its many offshoots has heightened Americans' awareness of and curiosity about the West, its history and hardships, as well as the business of ranching. Our guest
2: today, Andrea Nicholas-Purdue, is living that dream as the CEO of Wagon Hound Ranch, a 300,000-acre property in Wyoming that sits right on the Oregon Trail.
1: This is a true commercial ranch doing everything you'd expect an outfit like this to do and more.
2: Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Culligan Water. Culligan's drinking water systems deliver the superior filtration and refreshing hydration you need to fuel your high-performance lifestyle. Learn more at Culligan.com.
1: We caught up with Andrea while she was visiting relatives on the East Coast.
2: Our guest today is Andrea Nicholas-Perdue. And uh, Andy, we're looking forward to talking to you about your really interesting background.
0: Thank you so much. I'm, uh, I'm very excited to be here with you.
1: So, Andy, hey, we always like to start with a little bit about where our guests came from. You didn't start your career the traditional trajectory of being the CEO of a 300,000-acre ranch in Wyoming. Tell our listeners how you grew up and how you started your career before you got to the ranch.
0: Sure. So I guess none of it makes that much sense without a little bit of family history as to why that's in there in the first place. So I can start with that. Ranching has a long tradition in my family. My family have been cattle ranchers since we immigrated to the U.S. in the 1880s. So originally, my great-grandparents were cattle ranchers in Kansas. And then my grandpa was a rancher in Nebraska. He was the general manager of a ranch there, which is where my father grew up. So my father grew up as a cowboy in Nebraska. And as oftentimes is the case, he, in order to really find some opportunity, outside of kind of that small town, he decided to join the service. So he ended up in San Diego with the Navy.
1: As a Navy pilot, I might add.
0: <laughs> no, my father was not a Navy pilot. Oh, come on.
1: I thought he was. All right.
0: <laughs> no, but, um, you know, was very happy to have that opportunity. So that's why I ended up being raised down there and was really raised kind of with the background of the code of the West, if you will, and and those values deeply instilled in my family. When we were very young, we would still go out and visit the ranch in Nebraska where he was raised. But that was always kind of a big part of who we were as a family. And once he got out of the service and went into the private sector, had some financial success. And as soon as he was able, really wanted to get back to what he was so truly passionate about, which was a life on the land. And as I was growing up and had seen him kind of, Find success in the financial markets. That's a path that I chose. So I started my career actually on the trading floor at Goldman Sachs in London, and was there for five years. Came back to business school, and then started with a private equity firm in LA, and was there for 13 years. When, kind of, at any point in time for a organization when they're thinking about transition of leadership and legacy, I think that time had kind of come. And those were the things that my father was starting to think about. And he had asked me if I would be willing to come over and run the family business. I thought very long and hard about it, but then kind of did my pros and cons list, if you will, and and realized that that was the path that I was excited to take and left that career in finance and now operate Wagon Hound Land and Livestock.
2: That's a big jump from finance to ranching, although you and your dad had sort of showed you a path, but did it you know you weighed the pros and cons? was it written i mean did it seem pretty it seemed kind of risky. How did you finally decide to make the leap? What was the tipping point for that?
0: It seemed very risky. I guess a lot of folks of my generation or one generation down are maybe more comfortable with jumping around like that. That's not the path I had taken, so in my professional career, I'd worked for two organizations, and so kind of that loyalty and that commitment is something I really do pride myself on. And so even just that movement was challenging to think about. And then going from finance was something that I had been in and been dedicated to and had built a name and a career in and then completely leaving that behind. So, wow, is that 20 years or whatever? Not worthless, but am I just kind of giving that up? Obviously, the financial trajectory is also dramatically different. And so those were kind of all of the things of what's that practical choice to make. But then it was some of the other factors that made it much more of a clear cut decision. And so I kind of think about when you think about at the end of a life and you look back, what do you wish you have tried? So I tried 20 years in finance. I knew what that was about. And would I be upset that I tried and failed or that I didn't try at all? So that was something where I felt like I needed to push myself outside my comfort zone. So the two of you are very comfortable taking risk. I would not define myself as a risk taker, but I would define myself as somebody who cognitively attempts to continue to push myself, knowing it's not my natural state of being.
1: Sounds like risk to me. That's (laughs) that sounds like you're a risk taker. (laughs) Let's call you a risk manager, not a risk taker. Okay.
0: Okay. (laughs) Um, And so I I thought it was like this for having kids too. It just, you know, it sounds scary. So maybe that's the reason to try it and do it. But then the ultimate thing that changed it was I have always really wanted to work with my father and learn from him. And so this was my opportunity. And that's time that you just can't ever get back. And so that ultimately was was the deciding factor for me. So So
1: you went with
2: your gut.
0: Yeah, in your heart.
1: There you go. That's what a cowboy should do. Um, (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about Wagon Hound Ranch itself. Mm -hmm. How did your dad, who was a cowboy and a Navy man, end up actually owning a 300,000 acre ranch? How did that happen?
0: You know, I think that that's where his time in the Navy and kind of that value system that he grew up with were really important. And some of these facts I'll probably get a little bit wrong, but, you know, the story And it also depends on who tells you within the family. Right. So, (laughs) but, um, you know, when he was in the Navy, so he got adept at using computers. And I think that that was a time where the military was still very much on the forefront of that. That wasn't being used as much in the private sector. He had an uncle who was a Navy pilot. So that's where it came in. So my uncle was You'll get the terminology right, but he was certified on all three different types of aircraft. Is that right? So fixed wing, rotary, and lighter than air. And so flew all three for the Navy. And he wore his wings till the day he died. And we met my husband, and, and you've had an opportunity to meet Ryan. And the first thing he said to Ryan, who's 6'4 and has this beautiful, fluffy, curly head of hair, the first thing he said to him was, not a military kid, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: too good looking to be a military kid
0: yeah too much hair on his head right to be a military kid but so the way that i understand the story was my uncle phil who was financially savvy and invested in the stock market ended up buying a, a stock for my father and lucky for me and for my father that stock went up so i think my dad took another second and said hmm there is no physical labor, no live animals involved, and we made money. That's an interesting business model, right? (laughs) And so, you know, I think that with the guidance of Uncle Phil kind of had that, a little bit of that perspective, and he ended up starting an investment management firm that was known as one of the best. It's actually mentioned in one of Michael Lewis's books, actually. But Nicholas Applegate Capital Management, this aggressive growth manager, and they managed a significant amount of money and were very successful. And he really, really managed from the gut. He was one of those kind of stock pickers that it was really gut based. And he just had impeccable timing and intuition and all of those things. And so had a successful run with that and sold that business in 2001 Even prior to that, kind of as soon he as he was financially able, his true passion was really being on the land, living that ranch lifestyle. He kind of left the financial world behind, and I think really got back to what he truly knew and truly loved, and started building Wagon Hound. And kind of that legacy is really what means the most to him and connects with him the most.
2: It's a working ranch, right? You know, there's because Wyoming has the tourist area. Kinds of things, but this is a can you talk a little bit about what the ranch does?
0: Sure. So it is a big differentiating factor. So I do specify it as a commercial ranch. So it's not it, the goal of the ranch is for profit. We run multiple divisions. We have cattle, horses, farming, outfitting, and hospitality. And so the main revenue driver for the ranch itself is the cattle. And so that's kind of a
1: There's a pretty cool history around where the ranch is located and also a pretty cool history of the name, if I remember correctly. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that?
0: So where it is, is in southeastern Wyoming. And what's so special about that part of the country is it's right where the transcontinental migration came through. So you just have this kind of concentrated area of Americana, good, bad, ugly, all of it. You have... For example, like right before you turn into the entrance of the ranch is a mile marker for the Oregon Trail. And you look up on the mountainside and you can still see where the wagon ruts come through. Wow. Oh, that's cool. And what I think is really fun is right there. Someone obviously in, in modern times has put an old time upright piano there and it kind of sits out in the middle of the field and it gets tipped over by the wind and all of these types of things. And someone will always go over and tip it back up again. Um,
2: <laughs> it's a honky tonk. <laughs> <laughs> But is it in tune? <laughs> <laughs> I don't anymore. Yeah.
0: And so you have kind of you have all of these beautiful markers of the American West, be it old buildings that haven't been touched since the day the last person walked out. They all have their own ghost story, be it a one-room schoolhouse or a foundation left that used to be, you know, a post office at the time that was also the scene of an old west shootout. There's a cave on the property that was the hideout of a cannibal. So you have all of these kind of ghost stories of the American West that are still so rich and poignant there in these buildings that just kind of pepper the landscape and tell a lot of that story.
1: How about the name? Tell us about the name.
0: When the transcontinental migration was coming through, there was a creek on the property or on a certain part of the property that was n- notorious for having this very steep bank And so when wagons would cross it, they would hit the other side and it would break the wagon hound, which is where the tongue connects to the axle. And the brand itself, which is a historic brand, is a visual depiction of that wagon hound. So the brand is quarter circle bar, quarter circle. So it is actually a symbolic representation of of what you would see on a wagon.
2: So now you've moved to the ranch and you're starting to take over. How did you train or prepare? What kind of learning curve did you have at the beginning? Because I mean, four divisions is a a wide variety of things between, you know, the hospitality and the cattle, for example. That's a lot to learn.
0: (laughs) One of the hardest parts is I have not moved there full time. So I split my time between where my family is still based in L.A. and in Wyoming. And so I, I go up probably every other week or I'm traveling every other week. And the learning curve, I'm still coming up it constantly. I think one of the things that's most important is obviously to be, I mean, it seems very obvious to me, like, be humble about what you know and you don't know. This wouldn't operate without our general manager. It wouldn't operate without our head cattle manager. It wouldn't operate with our head of farming, it wouldn't operate with our head of hospitality or our head of outfitting. So I'm not there to run each one of these divisions. I would never be able to do that. One person would have a really hard time doing it. What I can try and do is find maybe that guiding path so that everybody's in the same boat moving it forward, but absolutely relying on their leadership and their knowledge of each one of those underlying areas because I'm still learning every single day.
1: Well, you really stepped out when you took over in a good way. And I'm sure your dad's very proud of what you did. What was the biggest idea you had initially? What immediately struck you as, I must do this?
0: I think what was really important for me to get my arms around was why. Why does it matter? So why is this significant to me, to my family holistically, to the families on the ranch, and then step out from them to either of you or to my friends I grew up with? So I really had to answer the question, to myself before I could really find the vision is why does this matter? And so I kind of had to answer that first. And I think what I came to there is there's multiple aspects of it, but it's really that land and wildlife stewardship of our largest shared asset, which is the land on which we live. And so first of all, maintaining that asset in a positive way is of utmost importance to me, to my family, and then perpetuating a way of life and a set of values that truly believe in and kind of sharing that beauty with those who care to experience it and that comes from every aspect to appreciating it from literally being on the land itself and really experiencing the serenity and the spirituality of that because that is very intense in and of its own right and then from the business aspect of it there has never been more of a desire by consumers to really understand the impact of their choices on our planet, while at the same time being such a disconnect from how food actually gets onto our plate. And so being a positive influence within that chain and that connection was very important to me.
2: Were there some easy moments with your dad early on? Because you have a close relationship and here you come in and He's, you know, very strongly feeling about the land and you've got ideas about what might need to happen. Or did you just dive right in with his blessings or did you have to talk <laughs> through some things or how sure. did that, yeah. how that, play how much out? supervision sure. did you
1: get?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I dove right in with his blessing, but definitely dove right in. It's a little bit like a marriage. You're going in eyes wide open. And so I knew the personality traits that I was going to be partnering with asking those or expecting those to change is an unrealistic expectation. It's like, you know, when my husband does something that I accepted when we were dating to get into the marriage, I accept them now. That is an unfair expectation that I do not hold him to. (laughs) So, you, you know, there's, he is who he is and there's obviously some strong personality traits and that's how he has been able to build what he's been able to build. But that's what I want to learn from. Again, he is a risk taker. I would consider him very much risk on. He is a concentrated risk taker. And I really see that as an area of growth. And so I look at how he thinks about that. I think that there's some areas where my leadership style is very different than his. And I think that that's a positive. So I dove in with his blessing, really knowing those differences between us and just kind of accepting some of those things were going to be as they were.
1: Now, ranching is a tough business. And as part of diving right in, you've diversified what the ranch does. It it not only raises cattle and the food for the cattle, it does other things. Walk us through the additional sort of features you've put in since you've taken over.
0: One of the things I was looking at is you can go through my generation and think really long and hard about trying to run the absolute best business that you possibly can. But unless that can last, then what's the point? It was really important for me to diversify outside of the traditional ranching business to create more of a platform that made sense versus one concentrated business. And again, that's really funny when you think about risk, because some say diversification is worsification. And so I struggle with that constantly. But I really wanted to look at some other repeatable revenue generating opportunities that we could look at both on the property itself, wagon, hound, land, and livestock, or within our universe. That kind of sit under the hold coat are related either by geography or area of expertise that might have an uncorrelated revenue stream. And so, speaking on the ranch itself, one of the new businesses that we launched is Reed Creek Lodge at Wagon So, we launched a hospitality business, and that was definitely going a, a little bit against the grain of kind of where we had stood in the past. So, we had made a choice not to do that historically for specific reasons, but I really saw that as an opportunity to remain relevant into the future. So that was an important aspect of the business that I thought we needed to include. In addition to that, when the discussions happened that we could or could not start a hospitality business, my comment was the ranch and the leaders of the ranch have have run a hospitality business for north of 20 years, just cowboys call it outfitting. (laughs) <laughs> um, but in the end in the end, that's a hospitality business, and we've been <laughs> run extremely successfully for twenty years. so let's make it an annual business and so that's what we've done. It's a really challenging business to run for a thousand different reasons, but the feedback that we've received from the guests that we have had has been so meaningful and has accomplished the goals that I think are worthy to accomplish, which is really this renewed sense of awe and inspiration for this beautiful natural environment we have. And there's nothing, it is so calming and centering and connecting that that has been a really beautiful thing to see come to fruition.
2: I'm sure it's a big pull for you because it's so naturally beautiful for you to get out there. And you said you're out there every other week. So when you're out there, do you get to spend much time out in the field? Are you trapped in an office or what's your daily routine look like when you're there?
0: So, the daily routine, and I guess this is where I operate best is that there's no daily routine. Oh, so very good. When, <laughs> <laughs> um, I love it. So, I, because whenever I have a routine, then I always try and shake it up a little bit. But I always want to try and get out and spend time with the team members in all the different areas. And first and foremost, so that they get to know me. And most of all, they know that I care about them, about the work they're doing, and about the ranch itself. I will always try and, connect with the farm manager or see what kind of trouble I can cause with the head cattle manager, go out and look at a piece of property that the general manager has been wanting to look at. But it's really, really important for me to get out as much as possible. One, because I absolutely love it. It's where I'm happiest. And each time I do it, I learn so much.
1: You live to embrace risk in the air, on the slopes, and anywhere your determination takes you. But when it comes to the drinking water that fuels your adventures, you're not looking to take chances.
2: With cutting-edge filtration that can target contaminants as small as a single atom, Culligan's Reverse Osmosis Filtration Systems deliver the next level of hydration you need to keep working at peak performance, whatever the day brings. Get started
1: by scheduling your free water test at Culligan.com. I have watched a few episodes of Yellowstone. Sandra has not. That show depicts some of the risks you know, associated with operating a ranch, although I doubt that you've had to deal with some of the risks that they have to deal with that are a little more colorful. But what are some of the risks involved in that business that, that you have to deal with every day?
0: Sure. I think one that they really portray there that is true is re- there is a push and a pull between private and public, and there always will be. And that's something that I think you delicate. Manage. That's always going to be something that both sides have valid points, and you will just always need to continue to communicate and manage that collectively.
1: Yeah. And on top of that, I'm sure there's disease and weather and all those things that just make life difficult constantly. I'm
0: sure. Constantly, yeah. constantly, constantly. So, weather is a huge one. Obviously, you're operating a business in an environment that you don't control. And so you put things in place to help you control that. Some of kind of the real harebrained ideas I've had have been a little bit around that. The insurance has gotten much more sophisticated, I would say, even in the kind of like the last five to 10 years in order for ranchers and farmers to be able to manage that risk. But that's also a personnel risk. Winters seem very, very long. And so however you can manage that to keep your team safe and healthy and your animals safe and healthy.
2: How do you balance then the you know a more traditional aspect of ranching with the modern business practices? Because I imagine you do have to find a balance, right? Yes,
0: absolutely. And it's a really interesting question, especially now, because there's been a huge renewed focus in, let's say, ag tech investment. I think you didn't really have a big focus in that area for a long time, and I think it's because you just didn't have a lot of money allocated to it, and so you had poor returns. And there's been a big renewed focus, I think, because it's finally been accepted that our food systems is really one of the big levers that we have to affect global planet health, right? And so you have renewed interest, both from a financing perspective and entrepreneurship perspective. And one of the things that I have seen is a big disconnect between, let's say, I mean, I hate grouping things like this, let's say Silicon Valley and what's actually happening on property. And there's even a distrust there. And so when you're trying to kind of balance the old values, older lifestyle, but yet still make sure you're continuing to innovate. It is a very delicate balance. And you need to understand what's at the root of the people that are implementing these changes. So, for example, one that I have seen a lot of is, let's say, okay, drone technology to check herds, check health, all of these types of things. You know, you talk to your cowboys and of all the different things, all the different parts of their job. One of the things they love the most is saddling up and going to check the herd. So imagine you take away actually one of the most enjoyable aspects of somebody's job. You know, that really changes the dynamic and changes their desire to do it. So I think you really need to understand what are those problems that you're solving, but in a way that's respectful of the individuals that are actually executing it on the ground.
2: Do the cowboys and the farm workers and the the hospitality, Well, the hospitality people probably already work with technology a little bit more, but do they have to be trained differently now because of some of the technology you're using?
0: That's something that we're currently looking at. One of the things that I really wanted to implement as well was to continue to make sure, you know, we've built a brand over the last 20 plus years that has really come to signify excellence within the different verticals that we operate. So on the horse side, the cattle side, farming, outfitting, you know, We've received the accolades and are really well-respected in the industry on those sides. And so one of the things that was really important for me to add there was to be looked at it as a leader in innovation. So to be an agent of positive change. And so I think you do need to be savvy to all of the different things that you can be looking at, considering. And so I, I implemented like a private investment pool, for example, because I thought coming as an operator and an investor, you could really provide us important strategic partnership. There. So if you look at a business opportunity and you say, hey, that doesn't actually work into the workflow of our ranch, like we would really actually never be able to implement that, then that's probably not a great path forward for that company. If you look at something else where you're like, hey, that's really interesting and that would save us time or that would improve our production or that would this and it actually works into our workflow, you know, we're just coming from a perspective where we could see both sides of the coin. So that was really important to me. And so when you say using technology and trained up on using technology, it has to be in a way that is within the existing workflow. It can't be a day out on the ranch and then going back to a computer when you get home at night and inputting a bunch of data. That's just never going to happen. Farming has gotten really sophisticated and a lot of that happens automatically, right, with the new technology of the farm equipment that you're using. And so it's a little bit easier to implement there. On the rangeland side of things, it's, there's still a little bit of a ways to go.
1: Uh, You know, there's a lot of pressure on farmers and ranchers, and you've already alluded to this a couple of times as far as the environment goes. Do you have uh, any special initiatives or strategies that you know you've implemented out there to have really good, responsible ranching and farming?
0: The term now that everybody's using is regenerative, and as as it's happened with all of these, it's practices that kind of get renamed to be rebranded. But it's practices that have maybe been implemented for a long time. So rotational grazing used to be what it's called, and and that's something that has been a huge focus ever since Wagonhound came into being. And that's been over a really long period of time, right? As the ranch has kind of grown, right? It's been multiple, multiple, multiple real estate transactions and trying to bring property into the fold of how we manage it and improve it. And so we're constantly looking at improving those practices. It's a little bit like if you're into being fit, you're going to constantly be trying to push the edges of that even if you're already in a good place. And so what's interesting about some of these programs is you, I guess with any of this stuff, to come down to a baseline, like you believe in the practice, but there has to be a bottom line reason to do it, or I don't think it's gonna be a successful practice. And so that I look at everything that we're trying to do, it has to have a positive bottom line impact. Otherwise it's just on a sustainable business model. And so the reason that you would improve your soil health is so that you can put up more grass and then maybe you can increase your carrying capacity. When you're looking at pressure on the farmers to improve carbon capture, for say, this has been a really interesting one that I've looked at a lot. That's become a market because you have companies that want to continue to emit and they want to offset it by buying carbon sequestration from, let's say, farmers and ranchers. Now, some look at that because they're saying, oh, so you're pushing it off to the farmers and ranchers to improve practices so that these other guys can continue to operate poorly. Now I don't look at it like that. I look at it as an interesting revenue generating opportunity.
2: (laughs) Okay. Well, I mean, it's the net we care about is the planet, right? right. Yeah.
0: But what makes that challenging right now, which is a bit of a bummer, is it penalizes good behavior. It penalizes good past behavior. So if you've been managing your rangeland responsibly for the last twenty years, it's obviously harder for you to effectuate additional change more so than someone who has a piece of property that has not been managed as well, then you make some changes, then you really see some big improvement, right? You're at a higher curve there. So that I think is a big challenge right now with the way these programs are, but there's been several different groups, I think, that are approaching it in ways that you can account for that. You don't want to be penalizing our good behavior for the past. You just
1: have to find the right metric, I guess, right?
0: You have to find the right metric. You have to- you know, And incentives. Yeah. And then soil too, doesn't just tell a story of the last five years. Soil tells the story of the last 20 years, right? So is that deeper soil samples, but then soil samples in and of themselves are cumbersome and expensive. And so we are trying that on some of our properties, some newer property. And then we are working with another organization that's really using satellite imagery because there's been such big improvement there. And the unfortunate thing is you can really only go back, I think about five years before that, you didn't have good enough data to really be able to make these assumptions, but now you do. So that's another way that you can kind of capture how your practices are impacting rangelands. So everything that we do, to answer the actual question, <laughs> everything that we we do is with the lens of, okay, is this helping us be an agent of positive change within our food systems? In that
2: context, what role does community engagement play in your ranch's Success and And how do you engage with the local community for some of these enterprises and things?
0: Community relations are also always at the forefront of what we're trying to accomplish. So positive community relations, and that will always be a balance as well. I think anytime that you can utilize local talent, we try and do that all the time. It's individuals that will know the land the best. It's individuals that will know what obstacles you're up against the best. I think one of the crucial things there is as much as we possibly can, we like to be working with local businesses, hiring local individuals, and just making sure that we are, again, a positive agent of change for the community so that the families that live and work on our ranch, there's opportunities for them, there's opportunities for their children, that it's a place that people wanna be. So that's definitely a rising tide lifts all boats type of mindset so that's what we try and accomplish.
2: Some of the women we've talked to on the show have had some pretty interesting, in some cases hilarious, experiences and professions long considered to be male-dominated. You know, I've been in a male-dominated field my whole life, so I was just curious.
0: Yeah, Yeah, we can
2: share. (laughs) You know, you have funny stories you accumulate over the years. So you've actually been in two male-dominated fields. I mean, working on a trading floor as a female is challenging, even today. And now as a rancher, A leader in the ranching industry, even so. So, what kind of situations have you faced, and how have you overcome them? If you're willing to talk about it,
0: there's definitely some hysterical experiences, (laughs) right? (laughs) We
2: we can compare (laughs) notes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So early on in my career in finance, I feel like it was kind of you know beat into me that women aren't asking for the compensation. Women aren't asking for what they think that they deserve. Like, you need to be more assertive. Your voice matters just as much. Like, men don't know anymore than you do. They just speak more. You know, so this was very... I feel like I was coming into the industry right when this was all getting really heated, right? And so from a very early on, it was kind of like, you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. That was just... Became so ingrained so early on that it was like, got it. Noted, right, be aggressive, ask for comp. Yes, 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 you know, and so.
1: <laughs> and then when you do, you're treated as uh, like pushy, you know,
2: whatever. <laughs> well, there's a, you have <laughs> and, to find, there's a yeah, balance
0: you have yeah, to find. and I don't, yeah. and you know what, the end, I didn't care about any of that. I ended up loving the comp conversation. I loved it. What's the worst they could do? Say no. And so I just ended up really kind of taking that feedback and just really loving it. Literally, the comp conversation in that time of year, I would just gear up for it. i get my spreadsheet ready and couldn't wait for that conversation. And, and so it just it became an environment that I was happy to work in. You know, I like the aggressiveness. You know, I like the just kind of going for it. And I do think that kind of dealing with that, I mean, there's it's very hard, I guess, to feel intimidated now. And so I'm really thankful for that because then moving in to this industry, you're dealing with, yes, it is male dominated, but there's probably not many things somebody could say to shock or offend me because I've heard most of it before. It
1: <laughs> are there other women in the same role that you have, Andy? And, and uh, do you sort of keep in touch with them or uh, yeah, so, are you sort of an island?
0: Sure. So that's a really interesting question. And I think It's still mostly men. But one thing I did notice is I have definitely noticed that of some of the largest landowners in the U.S., a good chunk of them have daughters that are now running the operation or will be running the operation. And I think that's really interesting. I think it's really interesting for twofold because that group of what we want to call them wealth creators or builders, the landowners, have kind of maybe seen that there is this next generation of leaders that are women and they are really accepting and excited about it. And so I think that's kind of fun. That's something maybe people wouldn't assume. In the end, women do approach things different. And so I think having a larger group of women focused on the land stewardship, the food systems, how we all move this forward collectively. I think that's going to be really exciting. And I think it's a really neat place to be. And I have started to see more and more women.
2: Do you empower and support women that are working on your ranch? And if so, how and what opportunities do you provide? I mean, it's for all your employees, truly, but for the women as well.
0: When I look at our ranch, and maybe it's just the history, I really don't bifurcate it. By sex. And I think it's probably because of the professional history I have. It's really who's the best for the job. There's been several women at the organization that maybe came in as a different role or maybe came in as a significant other. And then you see the skill set that they have and you empower them and promote them. And it's really who's going to execute best. Who's a positive influence on the team? Who's a team member that people want to be next to? And so I think all the rest, you know, the background and the male dominated is just, you're just going for it and who's going to help get you there.
1: So, you know, I was going to ask you uh, what advice you have for other women who are striving to become CEOs, but I think you've kind of already covered that. (laughs) Go for it, right? So let me ask you this. And as we kind of come to a close here, what is your favorite part of your job?
0: My favorite part of my job is Speaking with my father as often as I do, I try to obviously make the decisions that I can, but I feel so grateful that when things go pear shaped, which they do, I can come up with my plan and then I can call him and ask for his advice. So I feel very, very grateful for that.
1: That's very cool. And, uh, you know, there's such an increased interest in the American population about the West, I think. And what it's really like out there in a modern age and and in the history of it, that it's really cool to be able to talk to somebody who's actually doing it for real rather than you know watching it on TV. So thanks so much for spending time with us. I can't wait to get out there and see the ranch, frankly, if I can ever do
0: it, I so truly hope you come and visit <laughs> us.
2: Yeah, me, me too, actually. I, I love spending time on ranches and horseback riding and stuff like that. I don't know if you guys do that or not.
1: I'll have to look up your, your guest house.
0: Absolutely. Well,
1: I'm sure that there's an experience out there, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Good. Well, thanks, Andy. We really appreciate it. We wish you the very best with your continued stewardship of that wonderful piece of land out there and uh, hope to keep in touch.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me.
2: That was the CEO of the Wagon Hound Ranch, Andrea Nicholas
1: Perdue. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Thanks again to Culligan Water for sponsoring this episode. It's time to get the water you love. Learn more at Culligan.com. And check out The Adrenaline Zone on social media, including a
2: short video of our interview with Andrea on TikTok. Our handle is very simple, at The Adrenaline Zone.